Good morning. Uh, Disney movies is where I'm going to start. Disney movies are notorious for having the villains in the movies fall to their deaths. The bad guys at the end plunge off a cliff, off a castle, off of a wall, out of a tower. You got Scar in The Lion King, Gaston in Sleeping Beauty, or in Beauty and the Beast. You get the bad witches entangled in Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. Uh, I think the Hunchback of Notre Dame has uh, someone who falls from a tall tower. I think Mulan, Hercules, like all the Disney movies. This is how they clean up bad guys in Disney movies. And in this way, <clears throat> in this way, the good guys and gals of the movies don't have to be blamed. The problem of evil, totally taken care of, and there's no messy aftermath to portray. And sometimes even they just like dissolve into dust or magically disappear after this fall. But real life is not like that. We know that. And I have for a long time been very annoyed, as a parent especially, I've come to, as I've come to realize that this is the way that Disney does stories, I've been really annoyed by the good evil paradigm, by the way these stories don't look for nuance in the world of movies and fiction. And so I've sought out movies uh, where storytelling has been more nuanced, where good and evil aren't so starkly portrayed, where people have an opportunity to change or repent. Uh, I liked Frozen for this reason, where there was an understanding of someone who is evil, which shifted. Uh, and the work of Hayao Miyazaki in the um, studio Ghibli is amazing for that reason. I recommend it. Why can't the bad guy and the good guy reconcile with each other? Can't we have stories where badness is redeemed, where a villain finds understanding, where the witch or the evil stepmother better themselves as human beings. <laughs> Apparently we cannot. And definitely, when we look, for, at, look at stories in the Hebrew Bible, as in the story of Noah, which we began our, our, our journey through the narrative Bible, death is inescapable. As we're dwelling so much in the First Testament, as we're doing this fall, we just can't get away from it. We can't get away from death. Hundreds of people and animals, Pharaoh's entire cadre of chariots consumed by water, by God's hand. Even as I was writing this sermon, hundreds of people in Indonesia were being swept away by water. And it's tragic. It's heartbreaking. How is Pharaoh's army different? Why do they not deserve mercy? Jonathan always says, what you see depends on where you sit. I think he might have said it last week when he was standing up here leading worship. For the purposes of this story, this story of the exodus of God's people, for the purpose of the role that it plays in the biblical narrative, I sit in the seat of Pharaoh. So yes, I have a problem with the deaths in this story. But it is not my story, and it was not written for me. It was written for a people enslaved, a people oppressed, a people traumatized by those experiences, 
And it is the defining story of the Hebrew Bible. So a little catch-up from last week. I grew up with this story, the story of, story of the Exodus. I literally acted this story out as a camper one year as a child, crossing the Red Sea that was just a creek running into the North Saskatchewan River. But for those of us whose parents didn't make the book of Exodus bedtime reading, here we have in the story, we've come to a time when Joseph and his brothers, Joseph whom we encountered last week, they've expanded their family tree to the point that Israelites outnumber Egyptians. And a pharaoh rises to power who does not remember Joseph's place in those former, the houses of former uh, pharaohs. And he is threatened. And he forces this people into enslavement. And baby Moses is taken up from his basket where he was stowed away. And he's taken into the household of the king. And there he grows into adulthood. And from there he is called into leadership. I mean, I'm skipping a few steps. But he's called into leadership. (laughs) Kind of important steps. He's called into leadership by God at the burning bush. And you can see this story in multiple filmatic adaptations, cinematic adaptations. So as Moses is called, he calls Pharaoh to let his people out of enslavement. And God, through Moses, calls seven plagues onto Egypt, culminating again in the deaths of the eldest of every Egyptian household, bringing us finally to the escape of the people of Israel. They are at the edge of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's heart has been changed, and he is in hot pursuit. Because the story of the Israelites is a story of trauma, when they are caught between an uncertain future, a way that looks to them only like death, They are tempted to give up. They are tempted to return to the enslavement that they have known. Pharaoh is harsh, they think, but maybe we might live. So sitting as I am on the seat of Pharaoh, I'm tempted to chuckle at the diva-esque response to this moment. Are not there graves enough in Egypt? Why have you brought us to this place? From my place of privilege, I'm tempted to roll my eyes at the drama. But this response, this response that the Israelites have in this place is, comes from the same place, and it is for the same reasons that victims of domestic violence or abuse return to their abusers or stay in their homes. The future outside of what is known is too daunting, too uncertain. If we go back, maybe things will change. Pharaoh's heart has been softened before. We've never had to make our own way in the world. It's too hard. And Moses' response is firm. Be still. God will fight for you. It's printed in the headline of your communicators today. Stand firm and see the deliverance that God will accomplish for you today. Though the way forward may seem like death, the return to Egypt means punishment and enslavement. Do not go back. 
To be delivered from this moment by the hand of God is the chorus that is returned to again and again and again. It is the story of the Hebrew people up to the time of Jesus and beyond. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. These are the people chosen by Yahweh for deliverance. Next week, we'll hear these words again, this time reframed in the context of receiving the Ten Commandments, a code to shape life and community for the people whom God has saved. Sitting in the seat of Pharaoh, I am not the one who needs deliverance. I am the part of the culture from which oppressed people need delivering. When we reflected on this text together as a pastoral team, Megan remembered singing the song, Be still, God will fight your battles. Be still, God will fight your battles. Be still, God will fight your battles. God will fight your battles if you just be still. In her context, I didn't ask her for permission, but she's nodding, I assume it's okay. In her context in Chicago, Megan sang this within a community, a black church of the brethren, for whom this was a deeply rooted song of safety and deliverance. And that black church can sing that song in a way that makes sense. There is a reason that this story of deliverance and that the songs that rise from it resonate and have been powerful sustenance for the black community. To sing them should make white folks at least a little uncomfortable. I was a little uncomfortable singing that. I am uncomfortable, too, with a story in which hundreds, probably thousands of people are utterly destroyed. I don't like it. But what I have come to as I've reflected on this story is that it's the only way that this story can have the power that it has within our scripture. When you have been abused, you need a story in which God God has the power to utterly destroy the abuser when you cannot. When you are oppressed, You need a story in which God, whose cloud of presence goes before you, carries you from behind, whose prophet tells you, wade into the water. God will trouble the water over the Egyptian army. You need that story. The bad guys need to die. And Miriam and the Israelites need to sing about it. And scripture and story need to retell it and retell it and retell it. But it is still not my song and not my story. There are some stories that just aren't written for me. In a recent episode of the podcast Code Switch, maybe some of you listened to it, uh, it was following the Toronto International Film Festival, and one of the reviewers who was there, Bilal Qureshi, talked with the hosts, Jean and Shireen, about the way stories told through film the way, and the ways that white audiences and white reviewers, of whom published reviewers are 80-plus percent white males, 
The way white audiences and reviewers experience and respond to movies in different ways when they are about and for communities of color. Qureshi recalled the words of Cameron Bailey, who is the director of the Toronto International Film Festival and a black Canadian. He used the example of Barry Jenkins' new film, If Beale Street Could Talk. He says, it springs from the cultural production of black America in terms of the Baldwin, that's James Baldwin, source, source material. Barry Jenkins' work as a filmmaker, filmmaker and writer, the actors who were there, details, texture, nuance that I think a black audience is going to respond to in a stronger way, and black critics will as well. Not, of course, that white folks won't see, enjoy, and find meaning in this movie. Thankfully, there have been more and more examples of this kind of filmmaking in recent years. Those stories don't have to be for me, for me to enjoy them. And though through them, I get a hint of the experience of those communities. I am seeding my review of the narrative exodus to the people who find themselves in it. This is one of those things that I just need to accept with discomfort, where I need to live in the uncomfortableness, discomfort, uncomfortableness, that is these stories in the Old Testament that are hard. I don't like it that the bad guys die at the end. And I will, have continue, I will continue to have discomfort when we sing, all of Pharaoh's armies did the dead man's float. You campers know what I'm talking about. And I am grateful for this story. Grateful for a God who saves. Grateful for the depths of this tradition and the narrative. And for God who were family and story to Jesus. Jesus whom I follow. Grateful that through and in Jesus I have a story of deliverance and salvation that demonstrates nonviolence and love, and I will let this song be. This is a piece of the song that followed the salvation of Israel. I will sing to the Lord who triumphs gloriously, horse and rider thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might and has become my salvation. This is my God whom I will praise, my Father's God whom I will exalt. I hear this triumph anew, praising the one who saves and letting those who sing it exult in the way that God has triumphed, for it is they who were saved. Thanks be to God. <laughs>